This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day one. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the 2021 edition of UX Australia. My name is Steve Beatty, and I will be your host for the next four days as we take a bit of a journey um, and look at the design world um, as it has been, as it is, and set ourselves up for the next decade of design. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. The team here today is on Gadigal land. Um, I live and work on Wongal land, and I would like to pay my respects to all elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge their continued custodianship of the land on which we all uh, live and work. I think we are ready to kick off. Um, what I'd like to do is welcome Alan uh, from Shapeshifters to the talk. And I will segue. So we're just getting Alan um, queued up. Hello, Alan. Hi. Thank you. And so Alan is going to be live sketching my keynote, um, which I'm excited about. It means that I can concentrate on just talking rather than managing a PowerPoint deck or a slide deck, which is exciting. Um, and you get to see Alan in action, um, which is always fun to see. So Alan, if you'd like to start sharing your screen. Sure. So while that's queuing up, let me uh, quickly introduce myself and, and, and what we're going to be covering. So if you uh, know me through UX Australia, you may or may not be aware of the fact that um, for the last 25 years, I've been working in various areas of um, design from building websites um, and coding the JavaScript and coding the HTML and cutting graphics back in the, in the mid to late 90s through to um, uh, 12 years ago now, founding um, Melt Studios with my business partners, Ian Barker and Janet Devalda. Um, I've been involved in, in a range of different activities, uh, including um, being on the board of the IXDA globally uh, for a number of years. I was the president for a couple of years. Um, and that was a, a wonderful opportunity to be a part of the, the global design community, to be able to grow that community. Um, while uh, I was involved in the IXDA, we spread from a handful, uh, like a few dozen uh, countries around the world to having something like 130 chapters around the world by the time I was done. Um, and that's like to like down to the work of hundreds of volunteers right around the world who have a passion for the work that design can do and the impact that design can have on the world. So that for me has been both privilege um, and something that I've tried to focus on, which is to combine that opportunity to work in design, but also to uh, help drive the design community. Over that time, I've seen 
design shift. Um, and what I want to talk about today is where we've been over the last 10 to 20 years, um, not only within the UX community, but those disciplines more broadly, and how we relate to other disciplines. I want to talk about what's happening today, the opportunity for design today, and where I think those drivers are going to push us over the next 10 years. So I'm going to talk about the horizon for design leading up to 2030. It coincides with a lot of challenges and opportunities that we're facing globally, um, uh, opportunities for us to engage with the world in different ways and to really push what it is that we do, how we do it, who does it, who we do it for, uh, who we do it with. Um, but let me just wind back to begin with and look first at what has been happening over the last 10 to 15 years um, and, and where, have we, where have we come from. So let me begin by taking a look at the way what we have designed has changed. And I think it's fair to say, as you look, even at the people who get up and speak at this conference, we can see that over the last 10 to 15 years, the sorts of things that we're working on, the sorts of projects that we're undertaking have definitely changed. And I think about that in terms of what is the object of our design and how is that object changing? So 12 years ago, 2009, when we held UX Australia, you would have seen almost every talk focused on things like websites. Um, there were some talks around designing uh, for mobile phones. Um, it's a little hard to believe that when UX Australia first ran, smartphones were really only just starting to hit their stride. We weren't dominated by social networks. We weren't dominated by apps on our phones. Um, it was just starting to emerge what that might mean for us. But we, we spent a lot of our time as designers and particularly as, as designers in the technology space dealing with what was happening on the screen. And primarily that work involved designing the interactions and those low level interactions that happen when someone pushes a button, when someone enters data into a field, how we might um, validate that information before submitting it into a database to avoid errors, how we might confirm a choice or present an error message back to the screen. Um, and it, the, the work was within what I call the plane of interaction. So within the plane of the screen of whatever device it was that you were working on. And over time, we started to shift both further out away from that screen to think more about the person who was using that app, using that digital service and their broader context and we were also shifting back into the organization to think about where that set of interactions, where that flow, where that activity fed into business processes, fed into internal databases and internal systems and drove things like 
uh, customer service processes or sales processes, those sorts of things. We were still well and truly within um, the technology sphere, I guess. Um, and certainly over the last several years, we've seen our objects of design increasingly shift from digital only and technology only to thinking about how digital systems integrate with physical environments through to applying this same uh, thinking that we bring uh, to and, and have brought for years to our digital environments and applying them to purely physical environments. So let me give you two examples of, of how that is uh, shifted and, and how you might sort of see that shift. I've been doing a lot of work recently designing train stations and rail services. And if I had been involved in this kind of project 15 years ago, the only thing I would have been involved in was probably how you sell tickets through the web. That would have been the role of a designer um, of my kind of background, of our kind of background, being involved in that kind of project, we would have been involved in, well, what's the sales flow so that someone, you know, comes to the website, they choose their ticket, they sell, you know, like they, they pay for it, we confirm it, we send them the ticket somehow. Like that flow would have been the end of it for us. Um, and if we were lucky, we might have thought about, well, how do we create a relationship with that customer over time? How do we think about, um, you know, where we captured their interest in the first place? How did they hear about us? Why are they here? Um, we subsequently started to think uh, about questions like, well, why are they traveling at all? Um, and we started to think about, well, where does this service fit into their day-to-day -day activities? Um, We've, we've also gone down the path, and um, I, I think quite a few of you would have seen a presentation that was done um, at UX Australia a few years ago by one of my colleagues, Alexandra Armand, um, who was looking, uh, who, who spoke about a case study in which we had uh, tested the usability of a train carriage. Um, and, you know, this carriage was in a, in a warehouse that um, the train carriage itself was sort of set up so that people could uh, embark and disembark the train at uh, intervals, given orders, the doors would close, the doors would open, there were different scenarios that they would work through. Um, but the idea was to test before that train went out into public service in Victoria, um, before it was commissioned, would it actually work for the different types of people who would use those trains. Um, and it was an application of the same sort of mindset that we bring to testing uh, digital services and, and have done for 30 years. Uh, the usability folks um, in the audience will be sort of nodding and thinking, well, we've been doing that kind of stuff since the mid eighties, um, you know, when desktop software first sort of made it onto uh, people's desks at work that type of mindset is now being applied to things like uh, trains. But I take it a step further now and say over the last several years, we've also then been applying that same mindset and looking at things like, well, how did I get onto the train? Um, how does the train station sit within a community um, space? How does it help 
foster community within the area that it's been built. And if we think about, you know, the projects that are going on in, in Sydney alone at the moment, we're also seeing it in Melbourne with the Melbourne Metro. Um, this sort of uh, large-scale rail infrastructure is coming to Brisbane and the Gold Coast. Um, we're likely to see it in West Australia as well. These sorts of large projects drop these rail stations, um, these train stations, into existing communities in a lot of cases. And it's important to subsequently broaden out our purview and go, what does that look like in terms of fitting into an existing community? How does that help to uh, transform that community from where it is today into something new in the future? Um, how do we think about issues like safety and security so that as people navigate through that environment, they feel comfortable, they feel safe, they feel like this is an area that they can be, that they want to be, and that this is a service that they want to use. And that's still that same perspective of what is the experience for people um, with some very specific uh, characteristics of experience in an environment like that. We can see it in other projects where we um, where you see experienced designers, service designers working on how a building delivers a service. So I think about how, uh, for example, um, a, um, a cafe chain in West Australia, um, a, an organisation called Dome Coffees, have branched out into building um, hotels. And they've taken the, the essence of why people came to their cafes and they've been applying it to the design of hotels in rural West Australia. So um, as you sort of hit the, the highway um, out into the Grain Belt, for example, in West Australia, you'll find these hotels that have been set up that are consistent in terms of their feel, their service ethic um, to the way in which the um, cafes are run and have been run for the last 20 years. So we've, we've gone from dealing with what's on the screen and sort of what's right behind that screen out into the design of these sort of larger service systems, these big public services, all the way uh, through from that low-level detail out to how the system works. We also find ourselves as a result looking at how organisations deliver those services. So ensuring that the organisation itself is set up well to deliver on the intent of the service. Um, I think uh, it, it, it was Jared Spool who said it most recently that I saw, but um, I, I believe it's an older quote than that. But it, it he said that your organisation is perfectly set up, perfectly optimised to deliver the experience that your customers are having. Um, for better or worse is the, um, is the, the sort of hidden uh, byline to that, uh, to that note. But our organisations, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, are designed in a way that delivers an experience and a service experience out to customers. Um, and sometimes that's done um, in an emergent fashion and, a, you know, without that intentional design activity. And increasingly what we're actually seeing is 
organizations going through this process of saying, what do we want that service to be? What do we want that experience to be? And then how do we organize ourselves to really deliver on it? And then taking that a step further and saying, who are we as an organization if that's the way people interact with us? So what are our values? What is our culture? Um, and going through that process of reflecting on themselves and saying, are we the sort of organization that we want to be? Are we delivering the kind of value out into the communities that we want to be known for? Are we um, the sort of people that we want to be? And are we the sort of an organization that we want to be in terms of how we treat each other? what we value, what's a priority for us, what our focus is, and also what is our relationship to our customers? How do we treat them? And how is it that we create, foster, nurture our relationships with customers, with our community at large to be the sort of organisation that we want to be? So there's been this journey um, over the last 15, 20 years, and these are the sorts of things today that if you are, um, you know, part of this idea of a contemporary practice of design and, and what that looks like, these are the sorts of issues that you will be tackling all the way down through that detailed design of, and here's how that manifests at a detailed level on the screen with our furniture, with our lighting, um, with the colour scheme that we choose, etc. All of that is aligned all the way through from culture, organizational structure, all the way through to those technology systems. Now, these things have been emergent for a number of years, and we've reached that point where we can look around and we can see many organizations that are working on those sorts of problems. Certainly, Melt Studios uh, isn't alone in, in working in areas like transportation, um, or you know, redesigning the way a cultural institution works. There are, there are plenty of organisations out there who have gone on that similar journey. Um, but now I want to look at what happens from here. So what has been happening more recently and how will that transform into the future the way in which we view design as a practice um, and the way in which we sort of move forward as a community um, and as individual practitioners. So where we have been has been looking at what we design, what are our objects of design, um, and that has clearly been shifting over the last 15 to 20 years. I'd now like to touch on three more trends, uh, and I'll go through these one at a time, but these are the three things I think that are really shaping what design is going to be looking like over the next uh, 10 years. And in particular, I want to use that time frame of through to 2030. Uh, and the reasons for that will become apparent, but it aligns nicely with a, with a range of things. So those three things are who designs. So who is it who designs? Um, the second one is what does good design look like? And our definitions of what good design looks like are changing and will continue to change. And the last one will be uh, that I'd like to talk about is how we design. So those are those are three sort of broad trends um, that are changing that are going to shape our practice. Who designs is a 
uh, an interesting challenge. Um, certainly over the last several years, we have seen um, a shift towards a much more participatory uh, model of design, where in the past, and you know, I can sort of include design traditions like architecture, urban planning, transport planning, uh, landscape architecture, industrial design, a range of other design disciplines, and say, in the past, primarily design is something that was done to people. Uh, they weren't really involved in the design process itself. They weren't really involved in the definition of what problem we would be solving uh, with our design work. They weren't necessarily involved in defining what priorities people had and what was important. They weren't necessarily involved in testing whether or not the solution was any good. Um, and they certainly didn't get a say in whether or not it actually went out into the world. Um, and instead, we saw you know, good ideas originating with a designer, um, with an architect that were put out into the world. Um, and if they didn't resonate the way that that person thought that they should, well, then the budget went into advertising and marketing, not product and service development. Um, and that is definitely shifting. So the co-design, participatory design movements that we've seen over the last, you know, five to 10 years um, as, as these sort of more strongly emergent practices are blurring the boundaries between the design team as this sort of unit um, and the people we're designing for, the audience, um, and we're definitely seeing a shift right across the design process in terms of the level of involvement of those um, uh, stakeholders that will ultimately benefit from the design itself. And I'll come back to that notion of benefit because that in itself is changing. But I'll park that in the area of what does good look like? Those, uh, those audiences are now increasingly becoming part of our research activities. They're being involved in our um, ideation sessions and our workshops where we generate ideas. They are being involved in testing ideas, um, engaging with prototypes, engaging with pilot uh, programs to test and push and iterate those things. And increasingly, they're the involvement of that group is moving into the design team itself. So the nature of the design teams are changing in response to what we're seeing um, with that notion and with that sort of broad question of who does the design work. Uh, I've seen it encapsulated um, uh, in a sort of a, a, a short phrase along the lines of uh, not, not for me without me. Um, and it's this uh, quite simple notion that if you are going to design a service um, for me, then I should be involved in the design of that service. Um, we've seen that embodied as a principle in um, a new policy framework that's been developed with the Australian um, public sector. Um, it's work that was uh, sort of facilitated and, and run uh, through Meld Studios with my colleagues, um, Karina and Alexandra. Um, and it's an area that we've 
sort of formalised, if you like, into that policy creation process, this notion that um, people shouldn't simply be in the receiving end, uh, on the receiving end of these public services without having been involved in it. So um, it's definitely sort of coming through strongly in areas like uh, disability services. Um, we've seen it um, growing out of the accessibility community. Um, we've seen it in, um, in areas of how do we design for people um, who are not neurotypical, um, who are gender diverse. Um, and these are, as a principle, starting to change the shape and the makeup of the design team itself. And that will continue. So when you look around the room at your design colleagues in 10 years' time, you will see many, many different faces, um, many, many different types of people sitting there actively engaged in the design work. Um, there are two other elements of that that I wanted to sort of touch on. Um, and, and I'm not going to go into them. So the first of those is sort of broadly this notion of uh, diversity and inclusion in the workplace, um, in society, in the design team itself. Um, I'm not going to go into it, not because it's not important, but because uh, tomorrow, Stephen Wakabayashi, uh, the opening keynote for the day, is going to dive into this topic at great, um, in great depth. And I would like to simply leave it for him uh, to get into it. But it's an area that is absolutely fundamental. Um, it is an area that we really need to do better at. Um, and it's an area that, again, is going to change the shape of, of what design practice looks like over the next 10 years. The second or the, the, the third of, of these areas around who designs uh, that I'd like to touch on is... Um, a notion that is sort of uh, based in um, white supremacy, if you like, and uh, it is the notion that design is a colonising force, um, that capitalism is a colonising force, and that part of the work for the design community that we must tackle over the next uh, 10 years, and, and we are tackling and we will tackle in more detail, um, and with more energy is going to be this notion of how do we decolonize design? We're very fortunate on Friday morning to have Dory Tunstall, who will be speaking to that topic. So again, I'm not going to go into it. I just want to let you know um, it's where it sits within contemporary practice um, and uh, invite you to join me in listening to Dory's talk on Friday morning as she gets into this area of decolonization and what that means for designers and practice. Those changes um, and that, that broader sense of uh, within our society, there are some challenges that we need to be looking at um, is also starting to shift our understanding of what does good design look like? Now, there is, a, um, there is a way of understanding uh, good, which has been driven by um, financial and economic outcomes primarily over the last 30, 40, 50 years, if, if it hasn't simply been um, judged as an expression of the uh, designer's intent. So almost as an artistic expression rather than as a design project. 
Um, and, and that has been driven by, as I say, largely commercial outcomes. So it's, it's obvious, but it's important to acknowledge that we live within a capitalist society. We live within a, a liberal democracy um, in Australia. And uh, I know we have people joining from places like America and the UK, New Zealand. Um, these are all liberal democracies. We, we get to vote. Um, we vote representatives uh, into our parliament. Those people um, enact laws that are for our benefit, um, which is an argument for another day. But that's sort of broadly speaking the way in which we, uh, we, we live. And we have um, that capitalist mindset has distorted our view over time of what good looks like. And again, there are a few different ways um, that I see that notion of good having to change, currently changing and in the process of shifting, that those notions of what good looks like will have to change over the next 10 years if we are to uh, address some of the issues that have come about as a result of that capitalist logic. Um, and just to summarise what I mean by a capitalist logic, um, it is value is, is created by extracting things, transforming them um, and selling them, and that over time we need to do more of all of those things in order to maintain growth. Um, growth is inherently good um, and it is something that we should necessarily, as a society, chase. Now, uh, unfortunately, what that um, does is it becomes out of control. And I think it's reasonable to say at the moment that a lot of what we've been seeing in terms of um, the broad problems that we, that we might see in society are the result of that endless search for growth. Now, we, we live on a single planet which only has as, as much as they're um, enormous, they are finite resources. And as we've seen through um, the uh, discussions around climate change and the very real effects of climate uh, change on our societies and on our environment, we are at fault. It is, it is us that are calling, that are causing climate change. Our actions are causing them. And because they have been ramping up over time, the impacts of those things are getting worse and worse. Um, I think COVID over the last 18 months has shown us all that exponential growth is a bad thing. Um, what we need to do is find a new sense of balance. But some of the areas in particular that we need to work on um, is the role of design in reinforcing uh, wealth and income inequality. So we have um, much of design occurs from a place of privilege. It occurs from a place of um, richness. Uh, you know, in Australia, we are a wealthy society. America is a very wealthy society. Um, we tend to extract our resources from poorer countries. Uh, and in doing so, um, we sort of uh, push our, um, we, don't, we don't pay them a lot of money uh, for their resources. So we capitalize on that um, and we 
make money from it in these richer countries. Um, we see it in how our tax system is structured. We see it in how our markets are structured. We see it in how um, our economy overall rewards uh, people who have wealth versus people who, who work. Um, and we see it in the design of the products and services all the time. Um, you will find yourself, uh, when you start to dig into these uh, issues, noticing that a, a person who is already in a position of privilege will be given additional privilege by a product or service. To give you an example, uh, a, a, a frequent flyer program on, in, an, uh, in an, air, um, an airline, sorry, reinforces privilege by providing additional benefits to people who are already well off. Um, I can afford to fly because I fly more frequently. I'm given additional privilege. Um, and that reinforces, you know, my desire to fly more. And from a commercial point of view, that makes sense. But we will have to grapple with the idea that that is a form of privilege and that the design of that service is reinforcing that privilege day in and day out. Um, we will we will come back to that. But you also see it in um, mortgage interest rates that are charged to people. You see it in credit card interest rates that are charged to people. You see it in um, people's access to tax minimisation schemes, depending on whether or not they're, um, you know, they earn their money through investments versus earning their money through a job and, and a wage. And the further down that system you are in terms of your wealth, the more likely you are to be punished by the system. Um, in America, for example, the deficit um, the, the deficit in America at the moment is something like a trillion dollars a year, give or take. Um, uh, I, I think it's going to be higher at the moment because of uh, pandemic measures and the economic recovery and the stimulus spending that's going on in the American economy. But give or take in a normal year, it's been about a trillion dollars. The gap between the taxes that are owed by the richest 1% of Americans and the amount that they actually pay uh, is about $900 billion. So the richest 1% of Americans are not paying combined $900 billion worth of taxes that they should be paying. And the economy as a whole the budget as a whole is only slightly more than that in deficit. So when we look at America's uh, national debt, uh, and it's now up over $20 trillion, a trillion dollars a year is being added to that. Um, but close to the same amount of money um, is owed by this sort of richest 1%. Now, I can tell you right now that if you are not in that richest 1%, if you are well down in the um, working middle class in America or in the poor areas, the working poor in America, there is absolutely no way that you get away with not paying your taxes. Um, it just doesn't happen. So there's this sort of punishment that goes on doubly where um, people who can't afford the lawyers, can't afford the accountants, can't afford... Um, you know, to move their assets offshore and the rest of it are paying extra for being poor. So they're doubly punished. Um, and we see this everywhere. So as we start to uh, look at design over the next 10 years, 
we absolutely need to get to a position where we are asking the question, is my design reinforcing privilege? Is my design reinforcing wealth inequality? Is my design reinforcing racial inequality? Is my design reinforcing gender inequality, uh, the gender pay gap, for, for example? Or am I now helping to unwind those inequalities um, and make this a more equitable society? And what is the extent to which I can do that within the confines of the work that I have in front of me. And this is an important point. I, I know many people will be sitting there going, look, I don't design the tax system. Uh, I don't design the housing market. I don't design the economy. I don't get a say in you know, any of the stuff that you're talking about. But you can ask that question about everything that you design. And you can ask that question of your organisations every time that you're doing design work. And it, it is possible to start advocating for that kind of change, for that kind of consideration in our work, no matter what it is we're doing. The second thing um, that we will absolutely see over the next 10 years is a repositioning of sustainability from something that sits on the outer ring of design work to something that absolutely sits at the centre of it. Um, we will see sustainability um, environmentalism sit side by side with human centeredness as a core practice of design over the next 10 years. It, it will have to happen if we're to address just some of the issues that we're facing at the moment. Um, when I think about things like, you know, what does that look like to have sustainability at the core of what good design looks like? we start to think about well, what are our material inputs into the design process? What does our supply chain look like from where those materials uh, begin all the way through to where that product is consumed and then into areas like the recycling of it, the repair, the ability to repurpose, um, what it was that we, we bought um, to, um, ensure that it can be used for as long as possible. We have gotten into a situation over the last, again, 50 years, 60 years, where the speed with which we purchase, use, and throw away things has increased. We're generating an enormous amount of uh, refuse, rubbish, um, and we're not dealing with it. Something like only 5 to 10% of the plastic that you throw away actually gets recycled. Um, even the things that you put in the recycling bin, a lot of it is not yet being recycled. In a lot of cases, it's being stored in the hope that one day in the future, it will be economic to actually recycle it. It's not stored in Australia. It's being stored overseas. Um, and until recently, it was going to countries um, in Southeast Asia who I think quite rightly and, and quite fortunately turned around and said, we're actually not going to take your rubbish anymore. We're not going to accept it. If you want to generate this kind of rubbish, you're going to have to deal with it yourself. And that idea of a, um, a circular economy 
that idea of, you know, reusing inputs over and over again so that the materials that go into our design are the same materials that we're able to recycle back into raw materials um, at the end of life of a product is going to have to become, again, something that we're thinking about all the time. So if you work at a bank, for example, and you're designing a new credit card, that credit card is currently made of plastic and we don't really think about it. Um, Plastic is a bad substance. It uses a fossil fuel to manufacture. Um, it generates carbon emissions. Um, we have to find alternatives to it. The plastic that you use to store, you know, the milk carton that you buy that's currently plastic um, will have to change to something else. We are generating, again, far too much plastic waste. And when it was first conceived of as a material, it was minor you know we generated a little bit of plastic but the amount of plastic that we're generating increases year on year and oddly enough that increase in production of plastic is being driven by the oil companies as the use of oil in other areas gets decreased and we start to cut down on you know cars, um, internal combustion engines where we're, you know, burning petrol for, um, you know, moving our cars around and we're shifting to electric vehicles where we're moving away from oil-powered um, energy in places like Europe towards um, renewable energy in the form of wind and solar. The oil companies are looking for new markets and so they're promoting the use of plastics. Um, we need to move away from the use of those materials. So that mindset of where does that material come from and how is it produced through to what's going to happen at the end of it um, will all form part of our design work. We will increasingly have to consider what is happening with um, everything along the way with that view of uh, sustainability in mind so that we're not clearing land, so that we're not putting plastics um, into landfills, so that we're not um, generating tons and tons and tons of electrical waste, um, you know, consumer electronics with their toxic batteries. All of that is going to have to shift and it will require quite a fundamental shift in the way in which we conceive of our, our design work. The last one that I want to uh, talk about, and I'll talk about it quickly, is, is what we mean by ethics. Um, so we, in, in our design work, and you will all have some version of a, a framework that says, you know, we uh, look for designs that are um, viable, feasible, desirable to our users. Uh, it will absolutely be the case that we will have to add ethical into that mix. And ethical will start to take on a broad, um, a broad definition, but it will include things like corruption. It will include things like transparency. It will have to cover things like privacy and trust, and it will cover areas like diversity and inclusion. When we go about at the end of a design project and along the way in our design critiques, someone somewhere will have the job of asking, should we do this? Most of our questions have been, can we do this? And it will become a fundamental part of our design work into the future if it's not already for you 
that you need to be asking the question, should we? And I think increasingly the answer is going to be either no or maybe not like this. That what we look at and saying, that's a great idea, we should run with that, is going to change. And it's going to change in a way that says we are doing a lot less of the things that we used to do that we would have just gone straight ahead with. We are now going to increasingly be saying, look, maybe that's not the right thing to do. And maybe we'll ask that question in light of who does this hurt? Who does this design hurt? Who will be disadvantaged by this design? And should we go ahead with it if that's the case? In the past, we sort of treated that as, well, they're not our audience. Um, and, and we didn't worry about people who, who might not have been helped but potentially were on um, the sort of negative consequences of what we, were, what we were putting out into the world. The last thing that I want to talk about uh, in this sort of last 15 minutes is how we design how we design and the, the conception of our design work will have to change. Um, I, mentioned, um, I mentioned climate change before. Um, on the 9th of August, the IPCC released a report that sort of uh, took eight years of climate science, uh, the physical basis, the, the physical basis of, of climate change. So what is um, the, the readings, the measurements, uh, carbon in the atmosphere, temperature changes, ocean temperature changes, the presence or absence of extreme weather events, um, whether or not those are heat waves or cold snaps, um, the size, shape of storms, the duration of uh, rainfall events. Um, and they came to the overwhelming uh, conclusion that climate change is happening. It is happening inexorably. It is happening because of humans. And in order to do anything significant to help turn that around, we have to start now. We have to take that effort seriously. And we have to do it in a way where our effort is greater now rather than leaving it till later. And in essence, we have 10 years to make a significant impact on our climate emissions in our economy. I'm not going to buy into arguments around um, should Australia be doing more or less um, than other countries the simple fact of the matter is that Australia's economy needs to become net carbon zero. And preferably it needs to become carbon zero. Uh, and rather than relying on offsets um, to sort of balance out uh, bad economics and the use of carbon uh, in our economy with you know, some form of offset, we actually need to go through the process of redesigning our economy and potentially redesigning our economy from the ground up in order to remove carbon from everything. And by everything, I mean things like how our energy is generated, how we make things, how we move things around, what we grow, where we grow it, how we consume it, how we heat, 
our homes, how we cool our homes, how we cook our food. Um, all of that needs to be done in a way where carbon emissions are no longer part of the equation. It is going to be a massive effort and it requires us as designers and it requires us as a society to move away from the design of notionally static things to thinking about how we design dynamic things and how we design within a dynamic system because the reality is that's what we've been doing all along and unfortunately we've been treating it as a static thing when it just isn't and it is now careening out of control to put it quite mildly. The IPCC report shows very, very clearly that we have an opportunity still to move um, away from the worst of the scenarios that they're predicting. Um, and that's climate change of five, six, 7% uh, global warming. Um, that scenario is simply not livable. You and I cannot live on a planet where it is seven or eight degrees warmer than it is today. It will literally kill us. The heat will kill us. The cyclones will kill us. The floods will kill us. The droughts will mean we can't grow food. They will kill us. We must do something to avoid those scenarios. And the simple answer is we need to get carbon out of our economy. We need to do that by thinking about systems and we need to embrace in the way in which we work some of the core thinking of systems so that we can recognise them, we can recognise when they're working for us versus working against us and we can design them into our services, into our public services, into the way our community operates at a broad scale into our economy so that we are working towards a goal and a common goal that sees the worst of climate change avoided, that sees our carbon emissions come to zero. And while we're at it, we have an opportunity to rethink these notions of growth at all costs that comes with capitalism, the idea that it's okay to have both poor people and billionaires um, in the one society and that that's okay. Um, We've got plenty of material to work with. We've got plenty of evidence to show that this has to happen. Let me talk through what some of those things look like. So the first one that we need to uh, identify is where we see positive and negatively reinforcing feedback loops. Systems are full of feedback loops. And by that, I mean an action today has a causal action into the future. But what happens in the future quite often feeds back to make that first step um, different next time around. Um, to give an example um, that's been on my mind recently is around the housing market. Um, in Australia, whether you're sort of owning a home or thinking about buying a home or you've given up on ever buying a home in Australia, you'll be aware that currently we have fairly low interest rates. Um, those interest rates increase, those low interest rates, and they're, you know, like 2%. Um, uh, cash rate is a quarter of a percent or 0.1 of a percent at the moment. A mortgage uh, comes at like 3 3.5%. 3 
um, these are historically very low interest rates. And those low interest rates allow people to borrow more money, which means when they go to auction on a home, they can bid more money, which has the effect of driving up the price of houses. Um, that's good for some people, but it's, it's actually dysfunctional for society as a whole. But it goes around in circles. Um, because house prices are going up, um, there is a, um, uh, an impact back into the economy, which says to economists and people like the Reserve Bank, we, we need to be careful about raising interest rates, otherwise we're going to have a problem. Um, and so it, it goes around in circles. But it's also a negatively reinforcing, um, uh, a negatively reinforcing cycle for people who are trying to save for a new home. So if I'm getting low interest rates on my savings, it takes me longer to save. Um, that deposit takes longer. And at the moment, house prices are increasing at 14 or 15% per year on an average home in Australia. The median house price in Australia at the moment is about $900,000. So a house price is going up by you know, $140,000 per year at the same time that someone who's trying to save a deposit is only earning you know, a quarter of a percent, half a percent interest, which means it takes them longer to save and that house gets further and further out of reach. And combined, those things create the housing affordability crisis that we're going through in Australia. Uh, and when people talk about the fact that you know, it, it wasn't a problem in the past and I think you just need to save more, um, you can tell them that the system itself and the way in which we structure those things is making it harder. I should also say, you know, like in in um, concert with those things, we have uh, government policies around capital gains tax and negative gearing that encourage people to go into the housing market, which further pushes up the, the price of houses. Um, and again, like that's a cycle that feeds itself the next thing that I want to talk about is this idea of delayed feedback signals um, that occur in systems. So, you know, we have these sort of causal events. One thing happens and then another thing uh, occurs. But there can often be a time delay between those two things, which makes it very difficult to design and very difficult to intervene. Um, sometimes that can be a change in years Sometimes it can take decades, especially at these sort of large-scale uh, areas of societal systems, things like the tax regime, for example, uh, things like our industrial relations system, for example. Um, but you can see um, now over the last sort of 40 or 50 years the impact that these things uh, have had um, on areas like wages growth. So industrial relations system has been steadily changing for 40 or 50 years. Wages have been stagnant as a result or, or really suppressed as a result over that same period, but it wasn't necessarily apparent at the time that that's what would happen. So there are these delays and it makes it difficult to design systems as a result. The third thing um, that I would point to is this notion of a tipping point. In Every um, uh, system, every system that has feedback loops to it, um, every system that has uh, causal loops to them, there comes a time when a small change no longer has a small effect. And generally, we're used to a, a linear relationship between um, cause and effect. If I you know, push a swing, 
it swings a little bit. If I push it harder, it swings further. If I push it harder still, it swings even, even further. Um, in dynamic systems like the ones that we're talking about, there comes a time when um, that small increase has a catastrophically oversized impact. And we need to be aware of what those points look like so that we can avoid them, so that we can design in feedback systems that actually uh, stop them from happening, and so that we can find a sense of balance or equilibrium that means those things aren't going to occur. But tipping points can typically be catastrophic. And a tipping point can also be a positive thing. It can be the thing that takes you from, you know, we're, we're struggling, we're struggling, we're struggling, we'll push a little bit, we'll push a little bit, we'll push a little bit, and suddenly have an outsized impact. And the thing that I would use as an example there is um, protests. So protests, uh, you know, and we think about the climate marches, we think about the... Um, the women's march that we had in, in uh, February, March this year, those, those protests are of a certain size. Um, but um, social theory and political science have shown that over a certain size, those protests start to have significant change on public policy, significant change on the way in which politicians engage with the community and start to have a significant impact on those issues. So I think about climate change and I think about that the, the, the number that they look for in that tipping point is about 3.6%. Once you reach a point where 3.6% of a population is demonstrably pissed off about something, change starts to happen. It doesn't need to be 20%, it doesn't need to be 50%, it doesn't need to be a majority even. You just need to get to that point where 3.6% of the population is clearly unhappy about something, and then you start to see change. And that change cascades. It starts to change the position of political parties. It starts to change the conversation that you see in parliament and in the media, and it starts to lead to real change. That's an example of a positive tipping point, and that's one of the things that we we need to be seeing when it comes to something like climate change sooner rather than later. My very last point, when it comes to designing systems, when it comes to uh, our understanding of what a good design looks like, we have to grapple with the idea of what our externalities are and start to take them into account. So a classic example of an externality is burning coal to generate electricity that we sell to um, you know, light a home or light an office or any of those sorts of things. The externality is the pollution. The externality is the um, carbon emissions. And those carbon emissions go into air, um, they pollute the environment in a way that has no cost associated with it. Nobody has to foot the bill for that carbon emission historically. We're just beginning to wrap our head around what it means to put a carbon price on something. Our trading partners are putting in place things like carbon border adjustment mechanisms where they will start to penalise countries like Australia for not having carbon emission reduction schemes in place, for not having carbon taxes in place. In your design work, over the next 10 years, 
it will become necessary for you to get a much stronger handle on where the emissions are coming from in your work, in the service that you are designing. And you will have to grapple with the idea of how do I design that out of my service? How do I design a digital service where I can be clear that the service that we're running on um, are carbon neutral, that the power that they come that they they use to run has been sourced from renewable energy sources, that the way in which we make our, our product, the way in which we heat our food will need to be understood in a way that says where those carbon emissions come from. We will need to be able to answer a question that says, is a drive-through uh, takeaway service more or less emissions intensive than home delivery? Which of those two things should we be designing? And if we're designing a city and restaurant, what's the, what's the cost? And what's the cost to our environment? What's the cost to our community? Those questions are going to have to shape the way in which we tackle our design work over the next 10 years. And I say 10 years because we don't have more time than that. Within the next decade, we have to take out maybe 60 to 70% of our carbon emissions from our economy. It's going to require a massive effort. It's going to require a very, very concerted effort. It's going to require the effort of all levels of government and all levels of our, our corporate structures it's going to require the efforts of small businesses and it's going to require the efforts of individuals. Um, and it's not really something we have a choice to ignore. When we do it, we also have an opportunity to ask and answer the question, what kind of society do we want to be living in? And what are the rules that govern that society that we want? Do we want to live in a society where things like racial inequality are just accepted, where things like gender inequality are just accepted, where things like wealth and income inequality are just accepted? And all of the privilege that comes with that for some groups and all of the disadvantage that comes with that for others, we actually have an opportunity to change that. In addressing climate change, we have an opportunity to redress that inequality right throughout our society. And we, you and I, can absolutely play a part in how that happens. That's the opportunity for design. And, and I don't think the need for design has ever been greater. I also don't think the opportunity for design has ever been greater. Um, I hope you, like me, will embrace that opportunity and start to drive that potential change uh, through our communities and through our societies. I thank you very much for listening, um, and I hope you'll join me in that, in that fight. Thank you very much.